Amen. Now, occasionally things will pop up in the church body, in our family, that are, that are painful and that are difficult. And one of the, the families that serve at our church, Carol and, and Richard, Richard and Carol Rodriguez, um, have had uh, death in the family. And there was a nephew and his fiance and uh, a son and another uh, boy that were in a terrible accident and three out of the four uh, were killed. And the fourth one is in critical condition, and so we're going to just pray for them right now. Would you please join with me as we pray specifically for that family and for uh, Michael that's in uh, some pretty critical shape in the hospital. Father, we come before you, and we lift up Richard and Carol to you, and we ask, Lord, that you would encourage them and strengthen them and comfort them and their family. Lord, as they're dealing with this terrible accident, Lord, that took place, and Lord, I ask that you would please... Lord, be with all the relatives and the siblings and the parents and the grandparents and the cousins and the friends and the whole family, Lord, that is grieving, I pray. And we ask together, Lord, as your body, Lord, as your church, that you would please comfort them and get them through this. And Lord, we lift up Michael who's uh, hanging on, Lord. We ask, Lord, for your mercy and for your grace and for your healing touch even now, this very moment, Lord that you would send forth the word to touch and to heal him. Give the doctors and the nurses wisdom as they treat him. And Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would please do a great work. And Lord, we commit this family to you, Lord, in their great need to you as well. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please keep Richard and Carol in your prayers because obviously that's a very serious thing. But what a cool thing that we can do as a family and as the body of Christ to pray for one another and to help each other in our time of need. Uh, That's a very, very cool thing. And so Richard and Carol will be praying for you guys and for your family. This morning, as we get into the study of God's Word, I mean, we think about we never think that it's our time to go or it might be our time to, you know, to leave this earth. And, you know, we take life for granted so often. I mean, we were just talking with Richard backstage about this, this whole thing where, you know, we're so blessed to even be here at church this morning. God protected us and got us here safely. And this morning, we're going to treat this as if this was our last study and hopefully we'll want to receive from the Lord as if this is something that the Lord wants to be speaking to us which we know that he brings us here to church to not waste our time but to reveal himself to us and to encourage us and to speak to our hearts and so this morning we're going to continue our study in John chapter 9 this is part two of our four-part series entitled tops as you recall from last week tops is an acronym for trust obey purify and see in our last study we saw the importance of truly and genuinely trusting in God and we looked at the things that revitalize our trust remember we used CPR and yes this is the study of acronyms for sure Uh, CPR we looked at character we looked at promises we looked at results remember know God's character bank on his promises wait for his results And I know personally, even in my own life, as I shared last week, you know, there's things that my family and I are dealing with and and are walking through things even as you are as well. And I appreciate you guys bearing with me and I appreciate the encouragement and prayer uh, for my family. And we know that God's character is perfect and He's holy and righteous in all of His ways. And so we can trust that by knowing who God is. We can trust His promises. We can count on those things to be true because He does not lie. And He is faithful in everything. 
And then the results that we wait for are His results, not our results. Because if results were left up to us, there would be some major problems in our lives and some great shortcomings, but not with God's results. We wait for His perfect work to be accomplished and we wait for His results. So today... As we segue, and all of these things are connected, and this is all coming from John chapter 9, and we will see how trust is connected to our obedience. So our trust in God, aka our faith in God, is going to be the thing that we see is directly related to how we obey and what we do when God tells us to be doing something. So... In staying in fashion with this study, we'll be looking at three things that will help aid us in our obedience to the Lord, and we will trace our obedience back to the fact that we trust God. Because when it comes down to it, do I obey something that somebody is telling me to do if I don't trust them to have my best interest in mind? If you think about it, why would I do something that somebody's telling me to do when they do not care for me? Or actually they want to set me up or they're trying to hurt me? My common sense would kick in and say, I'm not going to do the thing that somebody's telling me to do that is eventually going to hurt me or be detrimental to me. So we look at God's character, we understand His promises being true and for our benefit, we know that we can obey what He tells us to do. In verse 6, as you recall, just by way of reminder, this man was born blind from birth. His disciples asked, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus replied and said, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in his life. And in verse 6 it says, And when he had said these things, verse 6, John 9, He spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam. And it inserted there parenthetically, which is translated sent. So he went, he washed, and he came back seeing. In verse 7, the thing that we're going to be looking at, particularly today, is this phrase. So he went. Jesus told him to do something, and he did it. There are so many people today, unfortunately that say they're followers of Jesus, or that they're a Christian, or that they're religious, but they do not do the things that God tells them to do in His Word. And that is a huge discrepancy. Because if I say I am a follower of Jesus, but deny that by the way that I live, I am not truly a follower of the Lord. Even as Jesus said in Matthew seven twenty one, He said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Because we can be good at raising our hands and we are fluent in Christianese and we have a general knowledge of you know, Bible stories and all of this, but we can say, oh, I'm religious or I go to church, which that's great. But if we don't do what the Lord tells us to do in his word, then we're not truly a follower. And so even from Matthew seven twenty one, what is it that separates those who are entering heaven from those who are not entering heaven. It's obedience. But what obedience is truly indicative of is faith or trust in God. Jesus says, not all who say, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. 
So obedience to what God's word says is something that will show that you have faith or are truly a follower of Jesus. So do I trust God enough to obey what he says? And we have this major battle in our lives and maybe it's been particularly difficult for you this week. This battle between the lust of the flesh and the spirit. For all intents and purposes this morning, if you're new to maybe church and you're visiting today and you think, what in the world's lust of the flesh? Think of it as the worst part of who you are. The one with all the bad habits and bad thoughts and selfish desires and ambitions, etc. That is the flesh. The Bible says that's your natural man. You don't have to be taught to do what is evil. You do it naturally well, like we all do. And there's a battle now, once I've decided to follow Jesus, between my old nature, my flesh the worst part of who I am, and then the Holy Spirit working in my life. In Romans 7, Paul writes this, and I think we can all relate to it. Beginning in verse 15, he says, listen to this very carefully. I'll try to articulate it clearly and read it slowly. He says, for what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. I find then a law that evil is present with me. The one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my body warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my body. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? We'll pause there and I'll read verse 25 in a second. What he's saying and what he's writing and what he's communicating is what we experience on a daily basis. I want to do the right thing. Why is it so hard to do the right thing? Why is it so easy to do the wrong thing? I don't want to do the wrong thing, but I find myself doing the very thing I don't want to be doing. The very thing I want to be doing and I want to do the right thing, that's the thing I don't find myself practicing. What in the world is going on? And we have these kind of experiences and these feelings and we have that turmoil and that pulling and that tension and that battle. It's the flesh versus the spirit. It's what happens in our lives. But Paul doesn't end there in hopelessness. He says in verse 25 after saying, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? He says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. So he's saying, I serve the law of the Lord and my desire is to please him, but the flesh's desire is to please the thing or to please itself, which is sinful. And so we have this battle. Is this condoning? Hey man, it's just my flesh. You know, I can't really help it. You know, that's just who I am. No, that's not the way that we live our lives anymore. How do I overcome the flesh? This worst part of me. Well, in each of the four studies that uh, we are having in this series in John chapter 9, trust, obey, purify, see, we will be looking at the CPR for each of those topics. 
How do I revitalize my obedience to God? How do I remove myself from disobedience? How do I stop practicing the things that are sinful? How can I truly, how can I continue to truly demonstrate my faith through obedience to God's word? How can I do that? Well, point number one, letter C is this. Crucify the flesh. Crucify the flesh. This is point number one of three, again, using the acronym CPR. Crucify the flesh. In Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life which I now live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God, or by trust in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. So when I kiss goodbye, my old life, it's meant to stay away for good. Because I always have a choice to either do something that pleases God or something that displeases God. I have a choice in every situation to do that which is obedience to the Lord or that which is disobedience to the Lord. And when you put your faith in Jesus, you're saying that my old person is dead because I cannot please God and please the worst part of who I am simultaneously. I cannot go right and go left. I will make a decision that either obeys God's word or disobeys God's word. And that is the lowest common denominator right there. It doesn't get any more simple than that. But simplicity doesn't mean ease, does it? It doesn't. Because even though we're faced with a decision to either obey or disobey, how come disobeying God seems like it would be the more fun thing to do or the easier thing to do or the thing that would give me reprieve from spiritual attack if I just give in? Well, you will obey whomever you are serving. You listen to whoever is your boss. That's it. In Matthew 6, verse 24, Jesus said, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. He says you cannot serve God and mammon, or serve God and a false god. You can't do both. I can't. We like to be able to think, well, I can do both, and that kind of keeps me in the middle, and then I'm not controversial, and then I'm not extreme, and then, you know, I kind of can kind of ebb and flow any way that I like. Well, it doesn't work that way. Some of us here this morning have been spending a whole lot of time after the lust of the flesh, which is, in essence, living a life of disobedience to God. Call it for what it is. You may not like to call it that. Oh, you know, it's not that bad. Or, you know, everybody's doing it. Or one last time. Or one more time. Or only if I've had a bad day. Or whatever it might be. Stop rationalizing it. Stop making excuses for it. And look it square in the eyes. And say, is this something that is obedience to God? Or is it disobedience to God? Because if I truly trust that God has His best in st- as my best in store for me, then I will trust what He's telling me to do. But then we think, well, that looks fun. Or that looks like it'll be pleasurable or that might make me make me be you know somebody that I want to be over there and we think that that over there the world the things that would gratify the lust of the flesh are the things that we really want and that's what we really need and we think oh it's not that bad or you know whatever it might be and we rationalize it crucify the flesh put it to death if I trust in God I want to obey his way above every other way And we cannot say that we truly have trust or faith in God if we're not willing to obey what He tells us to do. 
because I don't trust people or I don't do what people are telling me to do that I don't trust. If I don't trust you, I'm not going to listen to you. I'm not going to believe you when you tell me that your way is the best way and what I need to do is going to help me because I don't believe you. But if I truly have trust in the Lord, then when it comes down to obeying or disobeying, hopefully I will be like this blind man. Who when Jesus said, and I, 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 uh, this is my opinion, but I must say that I think it's a very, 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 very strong, strong chance that this man somewhat believed Jesus enough to obey what he was telling him to do. Somewhat trusted him enough to obey what he was telling him to do. In 1 Peter 4.3, he writes, We have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of those not following God. When we walked in lewdness and lust and drunkenness and revelries and drinking parties and abominable idolatries. I mean, he could have written that right now. We've spent um, enough of our past wasting our life disobeying God. We spent too much time living for the wrong things. And now it's time to say no to the things that are against God. You find a rut that you're in, you find something that's cyclical and it's temptation and it keeps coming around, coming around and the moment, oh, it's like your weakness. Oh, and then you do it and you give into it. It's time to break that cycle. In Romans 13, verse 14, Paul writes and says, but put on the Lord Jesus and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its desires. Make no provision for it. Provision is like keeping it alive. It's like if you were incarcerated and somebody gave you bread and water, moldy bread and water. Now, this doesn't mean that you're feeding the lust of your flesh this fine feast every single meal, which you may, and you're going to find that that's something that leads to destruction. But for most of us, especially those that come to church and would say, I have faith in Jesus or I'm following the Lord, we're not doing these extravagantly sinful things. We are rationing sin in our lives. We are keeping it alive instead of crucifying it. And we wonder why we can't seem to obey God in a certain area of our lives. But we fail to realize that if we feed the flesh, it stays alive. If you feed it, it will continue to go on. If you starve it, it will die. Simple biology, and it works biologically, spiritually, so to speak. Where you starve the flesh, it dies. You don't give in to it, and it gets weaker. So often we as Christians can be in a place where we're influenced by the world and we rationalize things. Oh, it's not that bad. Or, you know, because we become desensitized because we're around it so often and everybody says, oh, it's okay. Or, you know, they they laugh at certain jokes or say certain things and we think that that's all right now or it doesn't phase us like it used to. When we first heard it, it was, my ears are burning, my eyes are burning, you know, from hearing that or seeing that. They want to go blind or whatever it might be. And now it's just like, oh yeah, you know, that's just what they say. And, oh, and we become hard-hearted. We become desensitized to those things. Instead of thinking of how we can get away with sin, we need to be crucifying the flesh. Putting it to death. As Paul said, I've been crucified with, with, with Christ. It's no longer I who live. It's not my old man. It's not the guy that used to live for the lust of the flesh. But the life which I now live in this body, I live by trust. Faith in God who loved me and gave himself for me. In Galatians 6, 8, it says, For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. 
But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Now, we've read the story. The man comes back seeing Jesus, but could you imagine if he didn't trust Jesus enough to obey what he asked him to do? He would have remained blind. Well, he might think, well, how can he make it to the pool of Siloam? The guy's blind for crying out loud. You know, what if he fell in the pool? Oh, how is he going to get out? You know, well, this is kind of weird. Jesus spits on the ground and makes clay from his saliva and puts on, I mean, his eyes. I mean, that's original. Well, what's going on here? Crucify the flesh and you'll find your obedience to God skyrocketing. You'll find your obedience to God going through the roof. Because you're saying no to the lust of the flesh. You're saying no to those things that are going to cause you to be in disobedience to the Lord. Which leads us to point number two. After crucifying the flesh, remember every message in this series has three points. And they all begin with a C, a P, or an R. Crucify the flesh, point number two this morning, is know your power in Christ. Know the power that you have in Jesus. Do you hear sitting in that somewhat uncomfortable seat know how powerful you are in Jesus him inside of you do you realize how powerful you are I don't think we really do or if we do we forget it all too often we can get intimidated by the power of evil you know the the evil things that are happening in the world we feel helpless as if we have to concede or give in and first John Chapter 4, verse 4, it says, He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. I don't know if I need to spell that out to you. That just means that Jesus living inside of you is greater than Satan himself and every single evil that is in this world. So why do we tuck our tails and run when evil is in our face? When temptation is luring us? What are we thinking sometimes? Oh, I have to give in. It's just so strong. I want to do this so bad. Whoa, wait a second. You've been crucified with Christ. You have a new spiritual nature. Crucify the, the, the flesh. Know the power that you have in Jesus. As it says in 2 Timothy 1.7, it says, For God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. And so the first thing we're going to look at under this power in Christ is the power of the Holy Spirit inside of you. In Acts 1.8, Jesus said, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This is what he told his disciples. This is what happened on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came upon the followers of Jesus. This is the same church that is witnessing to the ends of the world. Here we are, the end of Irvine, right here against the hills, over the hills, the 91 freeway. We are still fulfilling what God has commissioned his disciples and his church to do. He says, you will be empowered with the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians three sixteen, it says, Paul writing, that God would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. And he goes on to say, now to him, who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. The power of God is working inside of you who have faith in Jesus. 
The power that is greater than any evil is available to you because of your faith in Jesus. So Jesus is the victor and if Jesus wins, we win. If he has already won, then we have won. So we're not fighting from a place of neutrality. We're not fighting from a place of defeat. We are fighting from a place of victory. We're already on top of the hill. So when Satan tries to pull you down, we've already won. I don't have to give in to that because I've crucified the flesh and I know that the power in me is greater than the power trying to tempt me or to discourage me or to trip me up. In Ephesians 1, verse 19, it says, And what is the exceeding greatness of God's power towards us who believe? According to the working of His mighty power, which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all principality, far above any earthly power or any spiritual power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And it says that God put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Period. Boom. Done. That is the Jesus who died on the cross for your sins and for my sin. This is the Jesus whom we have faith in, who enables us and empowers us. That same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that is working in us. So we need to realize that. Open our eyes and understand. Crucify the flesh. Know the power you have in Jesus through the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you. But secondly, under this power in Christ is the power in God's Word. For the Word of God, it says, Hebrews 4.12, is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So the innermost recesses of your heart, the Holy Spirit through his word can pierce through any facade, any front, any calloused life, whatever it might be, the word of God is powerful. So when you open it and you read it and you proclaim it and you study it and you apply it and you utilize it, this is a powerful resource. Jesus did the same thing, Matthew 4, 5. You might remember the story, crazy story. Jesus being tempted in the wilderness and one of the temptations, it says in Matthew 4, verse 5, that the devil took Jesus up into the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you and in their hands they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. So he says, Jesus, plummet off this, you know, this temple. And, and then as the Bible says, well, what was going on here? Well, let me ask you this question rhetorically. Isn't it amazing when everybody loves you, thinks you're so cool, you're the most popular guy or gal around, everybody wants to be your friend, everybody wants to follow you on social media, everybody thinks you're absolutely a superhero, you're Superman, you're Wonder Woman, whatever it might be. Everyone knows your amazing qualities publicly. They're no longer in the secrets and in the shadows. Everybody knows how amazing you are. I mean, you're the top of the list in everything. I mean, you Google good looking and you pop up. You're the first one that pops up right there. There's your photo. You're on the top rung. Satan was appealing to Jesus' pride. 
man, everyone will know how amazing you are if you jump off this, you know, 200-foot thing and land and his angels, as it says in Psalm, I think, 91. He'll, he'll, the, the angels will, will, will hold you lest you dash your foot against a stone. Man, that might be quite a show. Satan even's quoting the scriptures. I mean, do you realize that no doubt Satan probably has the Bible memorized? He was misquoting out of context Psalm 91. And Satan will take a little bit of truth and then he'll insert it with a lie. He'll couple it. He'll take your irrevocable truth and then he'll attach a lie to it. So you think, how can I argue against this irrevocable truth when the lie has nothing to do with this irrevocable truth? Like the boyfriend and his girlfriend. Hey, don't you know that, that the Bible says that a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his woman and the two shall become one flesh? No, the Bible doesn't say woman. The Bible says wife. Come on. Well, it doesn't say something like that in Genesis. You know, the man shall No, it's one little word. Just No, it says wife. You're not to be sexually involved with somebody that's not your spouse. doesn't matter how much you love them or how, you know, you think, well, we're just getting to know each other. We'll get engaged one day. Misquoting of Scripture. That's why in 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul wrote and said, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Jesus knew the word of God and he knew how to rightly divide it. He knew what it meant. And that's why in Matthew 4.7, Jesus said to him, It is written, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. So, Satan takes something out of context from the Word of God. Jesus takes something in context with with the proper and practical application and says, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Jesus overcame Satan with using the Word of God. You might think, well, yeah, yeah. Right in the middle of that, you're like, yeah, well, that's great. That's Jesus. That's the Son of God. That's great that Jesus could resist the temptation, but I'm not Jesus. Jesus was the Son of God. I'm just a regular person. I mean, that's great. It worked for Jesus. What about me? Jesus used the power of the Word of God. We as human beings in this day and age, right this very second, can effectively resist temptation. Resist the attack to Satan, even as Jesus did by countering those, those satanic temptations with the Scriptures. Because if you don't know the truth, you will naturally believe the lie. And that's the way it goes. In order to obey God, we need to crucify the flesh. We need to know the power that we have in Christ. And thirdly and finally, letter R, resist the devil. Resist the devil. You want your obedience to take off? Then you need to crucify the flesh. You need to understand you have power in Christ through the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. And then thirdly and finally, resist the devil. And I put parenthetically here, put up your dukes. Put up your dukes. Some of you are just like punching bags for Satan. He's like, bong, bong, doo, psh, psh. You know, you're just getting worked over constantly. The Bible says resist the devil. Why do we roll over so often when we're faced with temptation? Why do we think that God doesn't have our best interests in mind? And we think, well, that's the way to go, you know? When the Lord says, no, that's not the way to go. When he tells us to do something, it is for our own good. In James 4, 7, it says, Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. He'll flee from you. What does it say? Submit to God. All right, Lord, I trust you, and I'm going to do what you've called me to do. Submit to the Lord and resist the devil, knowing that he will flee from you. Now, you're going to submit to somebody, and I know that might be hard for some of you to hear. Some of you are like, I don't ever tap out. 
I don't ever tap out. I'm not submitting to anybody. And we think of like MMA, arm bar, choke, you know, leg lock, whatever it might be. Break my ankle if I don't, I don't tap out. Break the leg, break the leg. I'm not tapping, whatever it might be. Listen, it's a, you will submit to somebody whether you like it or not. And you will either submit to the lust of the flesh or you will submit to the Lord and the Holy Spirit. That's it. And you will either do that which obeys the Lord or you will do that which obeys Satan. So you gotta pick. Submit to God. Trust Him enough to obey Him. But then it says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist just means, so somebody was going to pull your arm, okay? Somebody comes up to you and pulls your arm. This is not resisting. Oh, okay. No, and there you go. Somebody comes up to you, pulls your arm, and you go, no, and you step back. That's resisting. You don't grab my arm. You do that to Satan. What does the Bible specifically say? You resist the devil. He comes to swing it. All you do is put your guard up. You resist the devil. He'll flee from you because he recognizes you know that you're powerful in Christ and that you don't have to do what he tells you to do. He's fearful of you because you resist because you have the ability and the empowerment to say no to that you don't have to say yes you can say no what used to be your old boss that boss that you hated the boss that you couldn't wait to get away from comes back and says hey i need you to do this no i don't work for you anymore i have the ability to say no i have the power to say no in romans six sixteen. Paul writes and says, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey? Whether of sin leading to death or of, or of obedience leading to righteousness. So you will present yourself as a slave to something. As it says here, Romans 6.16, a slave of sin and that will lead to death or you'll be obedient to the Lord and that will lead to righteousness. Maybe you're getting pummeled by the lust of the flesh and by the temptations of the devil. Resist literally means put up your dukes. Say no. Somebody comes at you and says, I'm going to fight you. And you go like this and he runs away. You have the power to say no to Satan because you've been set free by Jesus. Satan and the lust of the flesh have no longer any control over you unless you allow them to. You do not have to give in to sin. You do not have to do the things that you used to be doing. Crucify the flesh. Know the power you have in Christ and put it all together to effectively resist the devil. So, in closing, do you trust God? Then obey Him. Obey Him. Crucify the flesh. Know the power you have in Christ and resist the devil. And then next week, we're going to see how obedience to God enables us to live lives of purity. Do I trust the Lord enough to obey Him? And then next week, we're going to look how our obedience is directly connected to living lives of purity.